space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Welcome to Best in Show, the podcast that looks at the best episodes of each TV series I own in its entirety, based on the voting of IMDb users. Every two weeks, we release a new episode with rotating guest hosts. This week, we are joined by a couple of gentlemen who have recorded with us in the past for this podcast and others. So, as with anything Star Trek related that comes out through Bureau 42, we have Mr. Brian Rollins on board. Welcome back, Brian. Hey, guys. Always fun to do this. Oh, it always is. And joining us for his first appearance on this particular podcast, although he joined me even more often than Brian on the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown, Mr. Lex Pendragon. Welcome back, Lex. Thanks for having me back. This time around, we are looking at Star Trek The Next Generation. As many of you probably guessed just hearing that intro music at the start of this podcast. So this this is a series that lasted seven seasons, 178 episodes. It was created by Gene Roddenberry. Historically speaking, this is the Star Trek series that, I would say, successfully propelled Star Trek into a franchise. We'd had a couple movies, we'd had the animated series, but this is the first time that we actually had successful Star Trek without Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And that crew is the focus. So by this point in the series, uh, this being season five, episode 25, The Inner Light that we're looking at today, Gene Roddenberry had passed away and Rick Berman had taken over as showrunner. Now the series as a whole, looking at the IMDb user ratings at the time they were collated, the mean average episode score was 7.36 out of 10, median is 7.4, The mode, or the most common score, is actually 6.5. Standard deviation is about 0.93. So the episodes themselves range from 3.4 out of 10 for the season 2 finale, Shades of Grey. I'd say that's fair. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, you don't generally want to have your... You know, your big cliffhanger finale that brings people back to the for the next season to be a clip show. This one is the inner light at nine point four out of ten. It's not just the highest rated episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation. It's the highest rated episode of any Star Trek to date, as of the time of this recording. Pulling the curtain back a little bit, we're recording before the premiere of Star Trek Discovery. So. Those are some pretty big shoes for Star Trek Discovery to try to step into, though. No kidding. Yeah, this is quite the franchise, but as Brian and I were talking about before we started recording, they've got the right creative team to do it. The question is, do they have the budget and studio support to do it? That seems to always be the problem that Star Trek ends up running into as well. Yeah, and and since it's just weird, this this one is we're gonna we're gonna diverge into this one, but. The, the whole streaming, at least here in the U.S., it's going to be a, a crapshoot because I don't know how many people are going to willing to pony up and, you know, yet another subscription service. It may just be people just, you know, they'll sign up, watch the whatever 12, 13 episodes of the first season and then cancel. Yeah. 
I can see that. Also, I think the... F- I think the fact that Star Trek's fan base tends to be somewhat more technically minded than the average person, there's going to be a lot of people who watch the entire series within the first weekend who never signed up for any service. Yeah, or at least they'll they'll watch each episode within the first week of release. Uh, Mm Because it it sounds like this is going to be released an episode per week and not like a Netflix Mm. series where we get the full season done. Ah. So that's CBS All Access... In the States, Canada, we're getting it on the Bell TV tie-in, because that's the, the network it's got here. The rest of the planet is getting it through Netflix. So mm-hmm. I think, for once, there's going to be a massive number of people who are pretending that their Netflix is not in the U.S., rather than vice versa. That is very true. Oh my goodness, that, that will be entertaining. But of course, yeah, we're recording after this. So meanwhile, everyone's listening. It's like, what do these guys know? Yeah. <laughs> We've time-capsuled ourselves. We have. That's good. It'll be very inter- entertaining to listen to after the fact as well. It'll be interesting to see how accurate we were, like, four months prior to the release of the series. And who knows, if we're completely off the mark, I may just mute this whole part of the conversation before we release. I, I'm on board with that, but yeah, I mean, we don't even have a full cast, so they've even shot a, a, a frame of footage yet. Yeah. But yeah, Next Generation definitely did have a full cast. It had front and center Patrick Stewart as Captain Jean-Luc Picard. We've got Jonathan Frakes as Commander Will Riker. Now, going through who they were when the series started, Patrick Stewart was known to a few people for his work in Dune, the David Lynch adaptation of that novel. Mm-hmm. And, and Excalibur, that, that, was a, that was already a cult. I think that had a bit of a cult following. That's true. So the, the diehard genre fans it, on North America would probably know his face and voice, if not his name, at mm-hmm. the time this premiered. If you were not a genre fan... He was pretty much unknown outside of the BBC or the British stage. He did a lot of Shakespeare in the legitimate theater in England, but that doesn't exactly build your notoriety in North America. We've got Jonathan Frakes, who prior to Star Trek was probably best known for the North and the South miniseries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got Marina Sirtis, who played Counselor Troy, and showed up in a number of canon films. We've got Brent Spiner, who I initially had a hard time accepting his data, because to me, he was Bob Wheeler from Night Court. I had the same problem. I was a huge Night Court fan. Yeah. And now I go back and watch Night Court and go, oh yeah, I forgot data was even on here. We've got Michael Dorn, who in season one was just basically a token Klingon. He became security chief eventually. I think his most notable role was that recurring guest role on Chips prior to this. Very possibly, yeah. Uh, We've got LeVar Burton, who became somewhat of an icon between Roots and Reading Rainbow. Mm -hmm. In terms of the regular cast, he was the one that stood out to me as the I know that guy kind of person. Same with me, but I think that's also because the time the show started airing, I was in single digits as far as age was concerned. So Reading Rainbow would have been the only exposure I would have had to anybody on the show. Yeah, when it launched, I was 10 years old by a matter of days. Yeah, I think I was 12 when it came out, so I would have known Reading Rainbow, and I think we would have probably had to have been watching Roots. It was like, you know, required watching at some grade level. Okay. We've got Denise Crosby, who made it most of the way through season one. She was, you know, security Tashiar. Yeah, probably, I would say she was most notable for Pet Cemetery prior to this. Yeah, and then rounding it out, we had Will Wheaton as Wesley Crusher, following Stand By Me, probably as his most predominant role in that ensemble cast. And Gates McFadden, whose work I was familiar with. I didn't know her by face or by name, but she used her original hair color and her first name of Cheryl when she was credited as the dance choreographer in the Jim Henson Labyrinth film. By the time this episode runs, I think both Denise Crosby's left the show and Will Wheaton had left the show. 
Yes, and also I think it's worth noting Majel Barrett Roddenberry herself was the voice of the computer as well as Deanna Troy's mother. And I just have to make sure she gets plugged because Majel is the reason that my youngest daughter's name is Majel. So. Okay, he's a bigger fan than I am. I, have, I did not name any of my kids after Star Trek actors or, or characters. That's probably more to do with my wife, though, than anything else. She's like, no. Uh, see, my wife suggested Majel. She's not going to, you know, not, not like me being a Brian growing up in the 70s where like, there were three of us in the classroom. She's never going to have that problem. Nope. Nah, none of my kids seem to have that trouble. No. Majel, the youngest, Inara, the middle child, and Raven, the eldest. So if anyone doubts Lex's credentials as a geek... <laughs> then you just haven't been listening to the last 30 seconds. He's, he's, per, he's put his nerd where his mouth is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's fun. No, she, yeah, she was the computer voice in, well, the Federation computers all the way through Star Trek Into Darkness. So uh, it was uh, mm-hmm. quite the accomplishment. I think she's the only actor that's really managed to span every iteration of Star Trek. And unfortunately, I don't think they managed to find a place to stick her in for uh, Beyond. I'll have to go back and re- rewatch it yet again and see if, if she got a plug at all. Well, it, it's also somewhat impressive because by the time the reboot movies have come out, she had passed away. So her appearance was posthumous there. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. She, yeah, she was, yeah, I just remember she was the original, she was the voice of the Enterprise, at least in the rebooted Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they got... I'm trying to remember. I think Will Arnett or somebody like that got did the voice of the Vengeance. One of my uh, favorite things that I have found online, somebody had taken a YouTube clip of uh, the ambassador, Laxana Troy, talking to the computer on the Enterprise and just labeled it as Majel talking to herself. I remember that episode and, and it, how very few people would have, get, would have gotten the joke. Okay, yeah, and it just confirmed she passed away in December 2008. But yeah, she was there through pretty much all of it, I think. Well, she was also in Nurse Chapel, and anyway, we've got episodes dedicated first to- first number one. Yeah, first number one. This podcast has episodes dedicated to every iteration of Star Trek. So, so Next Gen, I would say, like I said, this is the first one that sort of established this as a franchise. The core concept is the same. Or you've got a, a crew from a future that, you know, at least Earth in that future is a utopian society. That's not true of every society in the galaxy. But at least Earth of this point was Gene Roddenberry's idea of utopia. And they're out on a mission of exploration to explore strange new worlds, seek out new life and new civilizations, and boldly split infinitives no one has split before. Exactly. And this series, I think, is at its core. Prior to Enterprise, this was the only other one that followed it. So this is the immediate predecessor to the original series. They had that same core. Deep Space Nine and Voyager went in different directions. Still clearly set in the same universe, but not the same mission statement. That's particularly true of Deep Space Nine, I would say. Mm Mm-hmm. Voyager did try to do some exploration, but like you said, that's a different podcast. Yeah, Voyagers. In the first 15 minutes of Voyager, they're on the same mission, and then they get new orders and things go wonky. But we'll get to that. Yeah, so I, I think that's really what this one is about. In terms of structure, this also... It, it was more serialized than the original series, but it is still largely episodic. Aside from season premieres and season finales, there weren't a whole lot of episodes that had lasting repercussions and changes to the status quo. I mean, obviously there are some exceptions, such as the rather abrupt death of Tashi Yar that was deliberately abrupt to try and shock the audience. And that's just one example. There are a couple, but for the most part, between season premiere and season finale in any given season, you could watch those middle episodes in an almost arbitrary order. And even some, you could flip them from season to season if you don't mind some jarring costume changes. 
I think there's even a few where within the same season you get the same jarring changes and then change back as orders were jury rigged or jiggered around as they were getting set up for the next uh, episodes. Yeah. Or as LeVar Burton got permission to grow the beard again and then it was taken away <laughs> even though he desperately wanted Jordy to have a beard the whole way through. So he there's a couple episodes where he's got a beard and then next week it's gone. I think they call it out. I think he did because he was trying to emulate Riker and because because Riker was was the perennial ladies man and 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 Jordy was not very very not the ladies man the poor guy I was like when I rewatched the series a few years ago I'm just like good lord yeah he had away with holograms yeah yeah that's true yeah Jordy didn't have a lot of success in his love life <laughs> so did you guys watch it in the original run. I'm trying to remember if I caught... I think I caught this one in the original run. This was... This one came out... I've got my notes up here. So this one aired... Uh, June... Yeah, June 92. So, yeah. Yeah, it was still in high school. So, yeah, I, I probably would have caught this one the first run. And it's one of those episodes that... You know, I... I remember watching and not taking a lot away from it. But then watching it as I get older... Um, you know, after I have kids, after, you know, this actually means more. So it's, it's, it's one of those episodes that's actually gotten better, at least for me, over time. I'm pretty sure I didn't see it when it was first airing, because I remember starting to watch The Next Gen with my mother, because my mother had been a huge Star Trek fan from when she was young. And the new series came out, and she was all excited. Oh, no, you know, oh, great, there's new Star Trek on TV. So we would watch, we watched a bunch of episodes together and then I was, you know, 10 at most during this and she decided, you know, or either she decided or we just didn't catch them or I wasn't interested and moved on. Early on in syndication, however, before, like, uh, here in the States at least, the next generation was syndicated everywhere. You would find it every single night on at least one channel and you were able to catch it, but it was still before DVRs and stuff like that, so you weren't going to catch all of it. And this one episode is one I know I remember sticking out, and when it got to the point where, you know, today you can go back and rewatch the entire series, like Brian was just saying he did, I know we caught this, and this was the one episode I re distinctively remember, like, oh, I, you know, there's that one episode, it was really good. The, <laughs> didn't remember the name, didn't remember any of that stuff, I found it out since, obviously, but that was the one I was like waiting for the entire series. Cause I'm like, I remember that one. That was really good. That was a great story. Yeah. For me, I, I was hit and miss watching next generation for the first season, but by early season two, I was watching it pretty regularly. So this one I saw right there in the original broadcast. And yeah, it was, would have been shortly after this point or this was the years in season five, uh, that it started going into that syndication. Because at the time, they needed 100 episodes mm. to do a syndicated run. So at this point, not only were my sister and I watching it every Friday night when the new episodes aired in our local market, but Monday through Friday at 5 p.m., we were catching the reruns after school in the syndicated reruns. So I have seen every episode of Next Generation multiple times over the years. It's it's this, not my favorite Star Trek. That's for a different podcast, but it is the one I'm most familiar with. And yeah, this is one of the standouts in my memory as well. It's, well, getting into the synopsis of this particular episode, the Enterprise encounters a probe, which is an odd combination of technology made of ceramics and whatnot. Um, seems to have some relatively limited propulsion, and yet it forms an almost immediate mental link with Captain Picard. So what we get is intercutting between the Enterprise crew trying to figure out what this thing is doing, find, track it back to its source, and release Picard from this link because they don't know what it's going to do to him, you know, trying to do it safely. Meanwhile, Picard is essentially living somebody else's life on a planet. He remembers being Picard. At the beginning, he, you know, it's very clear he remembers being Picard. He's the first lines out of his mouth when he wakes up on this planet are computer freeze program and computer end program. So he's, you know, thinking the most likely idea for what's going on is that he's on the holodeck, or at least he's trying that. 
but he eventually, you know, has kids, grandkids, and he's fighting for this, the safety of this planet. And, you know, he's brought the scientific knowledge he has, realizes their son's going to go Nova. This society is doomed. His children, his grandchildren, you know, they need to make the most of the time they have because it's not a lot. And as it ends, the people who meant the most to him in this life who passed away come back to him as he first knew them in their prime saying, yeah, we're launching a probe. We're going to live on in the memory of someone else and that someone else is you. So he, it's basically dumping this lifetime into his head so that they're not forgotten. When it runs its course, he wakes up on the bridge, disoriented, because as far as he's concerned, it's been decades since he's been on the bridge of the Enterprise. Even though, from the perspective of the rest of the crew, it's been 20, 25 minutes. Mm -hmm. And he has to readjust to life as Captain Picard. And the only memento he really has, aside from the probe itself in the cargo hold, is a flute that his character or his alternate life had learned to play that was sent with him. So I think that's the episode in a nutshell. Is there any key details I missed out, guys? That seems pretty accurate to me. I know yeah. there, there's a lot of him learning to accept to become a member of this society. Like, he wakes up and they start calling him Cayman. He wakes up as Cayman and starts trying to you know, end the program and, you know, he's Picard. He knows who he is. He spends his first day walking beyond the borders of the town trying to find the edges of this prison he assumes he's in. And then he gets home to his wife and kind of slowly starts to accept that he actually is Cayman. And then he figures out what's going on with society and starts living his life as Cayman. Like you said, he spends, I think, 60 years as Cayman in this blink of an eye to the Enterprise. And there's a lot of him accepting that. Like, at first, he's like, no, I'm, I'm Picard. I'll just play along for a bit. Wait a minute. What's going on here? Why is it getting warmer? What, what can we do to fix this? And slowly, there's a very slow transition from I'm Picard playing along to I'm Cayman. Yeah, I had an episode, you know, decades back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that in... in because this is this is a very emotional episode, and I think that's what mm -hmm. draws people to this one. And one of the things I was I was struck by when I was watching it again was the the flute that he has, and and when he first gets it, he's he's given the flute, and he's like, oh yeah. His wife said, yeah, you've been trying to play this, and he just you know he squeaks out a couple of bad notes, and and uh, as the episode progresses, he gets better at it. And you can almost see the flute as a, a, a metaphor, his ability with the flute, rather, is a metaphor of him accepting. By the end, you get this very, very beautiful piece of music. And, and we should, uh, what's, uh, the composer for this episode is Jay Chataway, uh, who, who did a number of Star Treks from Next Gen through Voyager, I believe. And it, it's this very beautiful piece that, uh, you know, it, he has kids. He, you know, finally accepts. He really does accept who that he is, Cayman. That he is married to this woman. That he's, you know, that you know she's put up with him. Um, you know, she's been this long-suffering wife. That's like, you know, my eccentric husband who thinks he's a captain of a starship somewhere. And then she just kind of puts, you know, and then he slowly seems to genuinely fall in love with her, and they have children. Um, and and he becomes a real, you know, he puts down roots, and you know. The, the, there's no other, you know, you know, there is the tree as well, the, but, you know, he's got, he's putting his, his roots down in the society by having children with her and, and really accepting who he is. I also recently read that flute. They didn't expect it to be as important to the fans as it was. And when they ended up selling it at auction, it went for $48,000. I could see you that. Know? And you can't actually play it. It's a non-playable prop. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were talking about that on the Mission Log podcast to go along with this as well, which was a bit of a surprise because the other thing that they point out is it's not actually a flute, it's a penny whistle. That was a choice. The script said flute. The prop guys replaced it with a penny whistle just for the look. Yeah, because that way you can still see the actor's face as he's playing it. Exactly. Speaking of the script, it was originally a story by Morgan Gendel, who shares the teleplay credits with Peter Allen Fields and was directed by Peter Lauritsen, 
Peter Lorigan is a director who's done a number of Star Trek episodes. The names of the writers don't immediately jump out at me as being closely associated with a lot of Star Trek, but Star Trek is different in its writing policies. They have much more of an open door and will take unsolicited scripts and unrepresented scripts, whereas most series wouldn't. And that's a, a relic of the original series days when Gene Roddenberry wanted experienced and respected sci-fi authors writing the episodes, whether they were members of LA's unions or not. So to open the door for them, he had to open it for everyone. Yeah. To make another callback to Discovery, that's that's how Brian Fuller got his start. It was an unsolicited script uh, into Next Gen. Uh, he just dropped a script in, away it went. Yeah. Although, that one wasn't actually used. He ended up doing one Deep Space Nine and then a number of Voyagers. All right. So, in terms of the significance, like we said, this series is largely episodic. And this is a shining example of that. You know, this doesn't really depend at all on what came before. And has very little to do with what's coming up. I, I think we might see Picard with that penny whistle again, but... There, there's one other episode, I think it's in the next season, I think it's called Lessons. And Picard does break out the flute and talks to... It was a one-off character, too. One of the sub-commanders on his, uh, that had been assigned to the Enterprise, and he falls in love with her, and she has to leave because you know he can't, he can't have an, a relationship with a subordinate like that. But yeah, she plays piano in the Jeffries tubes because the acoustics are so good. So he goes and plays flute with her in, in the Jeffries tubes. So that's the only other mention of it, which is too bad because this is clearly a life-altering moment for Picard. He literally lives yet another life, and unfortunately, it's never really mentioned again. Mm -hmm. it, it's also, there's a brief callback to it, and I watched it recently, but I still don't even remember the callback. Uh, in the movie Nemesis, he ends up quoting the same thing that's told to him about appreciate appreciate now while mm. you're having it. Like that same bit. He repeats that exact same line back to someone else in the story. I think it's Data. And he's telling them the same thing. And it's one of those things where you can see this has become a core part of his character. That's just who he is now. And I think the flute's visible in, in his ready room yes. at some point. In, in, I can't remember <laughs> if it was Nemesis or some of the other, one of the other ones <laughs> with the Enterprise E. But you can see the, the flute and the little scroll thing on the back of his chair that, that they add at one point. He gets that from another alien race. Mm. But yeah, the flutes, I believe it's visible in a display case in the corner. And they even had a deleted scene where Data picks it up to look at it for a second and then puts it back down during Nemesis, but it didn't make it into the movie. Yeah, I think if anything, there's also, like you said, it is a life-altering experience for Picard. One of the things he says as Cayman is that what's made him happiest are all the things he didn't think he needed, right? The wife, the kids, the family, mm -hmm. that stable home. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is probably one of the puzzle pieces that led up to the character arcs that they used between him and Beverly Crusher in season seven. In the first couple seasons, or first season, there's very clearly a budding romance there. Mm -hmm. That they are both you know, hesitant to move into. And then season two, Gates McFadden had been fired and was off the show. And they brought in Diana Maldauer as Dr. Pulaski, which was an interesting character, but it's just that character didn't gel with the rest of the cast. It, Pulaski didn't fit the dynamic, and apparently Maldauer didn't really fit the crew, so they... Well, yeah, they, they never... Re I mean, they never gave her... Um you know, opening credit status. She was always a guest star. Yeah. You can even see that. So, but it was, yeah, it was clear they were trying to create a bone Spock dynamic with her and data. And it just didn't work because she just came across as mean. <laughs> she just seemed like she was just mean to data and data didn't have the spine like Nimoy Spock did to, to argue back with her. She he was too, too soft. So, it didn't work. Um, it just came across as sort of a bully and, and, a, and a poor kid. 
you know, not not to you know, Moldauer. She she had a guest appearance on an on an original series episode, and she's done really good work outside of it. But yeah, you're right; it just didn't work. But then again, there are a lot of things from the first couple of seasons that just didn't work. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that was clear to them that that wasn't working. So she was only there for season two. Season three, Gates McFadden was back as Crusher. So she spent that year in charge of medical at Starfleet Command. But it's it to me, it feels like once they brought her back, that romance between her and Picard was just dropped. And they don't return to it until season seven. So you could see this as a piece of the puzzle for why Picard is open to that and pushing forward. But it takes another season before that gets running, and I, I think there's actually a better episode in season seven where they end up mind-linked that mm-hmm. explains why they start working in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting because you have the whole, I mean, with, with Generations, uh, the first next-gen movie, kind of the Picard's quote-unquote heaven, um, you know, in the Nexus is him with the family. And so clearly, they don't ever call back to what happens in inner life, but you can see that the same themes there—that the the whole theme, time, time is the fire in which we burn, as as uh, Soren would say in that one. But yeah, that was his idea of Nirvana. Was his his wife and loads of kids and and the family all around, which was not unlike what he had in in this illusionary lifetime. One of the points that we always talk about is whether or not this would be a good first episode for new viewers of the series. So if you've got someone who's never seen Star Trek The Next Generation before, do they understand the episode if they drop, watch it in isolation? And does it sort of introduce them to the series in an effective way? I, I think it definitely does. I mean, if you're going to sit somebody down who at this point, if you're talking to somebody who's never heard of Star Trek, I don't think they're going to have any interest in ever watching it. If they may want to see Star Trek, I'm sure they've heard of it, because who hasn't? <laughs> so, taking that into account, they're going to know there's a spaceship, they're going to know they're out in space somewhere in the future. That's pretty much all you need to know. Everything else is explained to you as it's going on. The guy in charge gets whisked away to this illusionary other world, and then everything else is confusing for them, just like a new viewer would be, and it's all explained to you as you go. So I think for, you know, showing somebody what Star Trek can be like, this is a great way to show it to them. It doesn't hurt that it's one of the best episodes. Or the best. Yeah, I mean, definitely. It's, it's, got, it's got some, you know, some of the best acting from Stuart. Um, the guest cast is phenomenal. And, you know, the the... I think it's Mark. I can't think of her. I'm going to flood up her name, but the, the woman that plays Aline, his wife, fantastic. The whole, the whole cast, the people they get to play his kids, uh, including his adult son, which is actually Daniel Stewart, Patrick Stewart's actual son. So, you know, that, that, that clearly meant something to the cast. One of the things that in this, this, you know, we, we talk about also, it's, but it's really a Picard-focused episode. It's very little, other than the bridge. You don't, other than bridge, and I think Picard's quarters at the very end. You don't see anything else of the ship. That's it. it you, it's it's totally focused on Picard. Uh, the rest of the supporting, the regular supporting cast, just get a little bits here and there. They do show that they all care. Clearly, they're all upset. It you know it, it plays into Star Trek's family dynamic of oh oh dad's sick, and you clearly can see that you know especially from Riker and, and Crusher is that, you know, they're, they're concerned for him. Worf is, you know, let's just destroy the, sh- <laughs> destroy the, the probe. His answer to everything is to just, you know, blast it. So, and, and you know, and, and then data is trying to find the, the scientific solution and uh, along with Geordi, Deanna Troy is not in this episode at all. And, and maybe that maybe that may fit into why this is one of the favorite episodes. I don't know. That could be a debate for another time. Uh, but but Sirtis does not make an actual appearance. She's credited, but she doesn't actually appear anywhere in the episode. Which is funny because her character would have fit perfectly into this, saying, "Well, he seems to be okay." Maybe that's why they wrote her out. This is it's it's you know it's like you're lost in the woods and suddenly your cell phone goes dead. Um, you know, in a, in a movie that's, it, it, it would explain away, oh no, he's fine. He's happy. He's content. 
you know, and nobody, it, it would completely suck the, the tension out of the episode uh, if Troy happened to be there. Yeah, that, that's common of the episodes where Troy is not there. She's not there because if she's there, the episode's five minutes long. I think this might have been one of those episodes where everybody went on vacation, so they took most of the cast who could be there, filmed their scenes on the bridge in a day or two, then let everybody go. I would say that this is an episode that, if you could find someone who's never seen a Star Trek episode before, you know, say one of today's teenagers, it feels like old to them, right? They watch Discovery, they enjoy it, they want exposure to others. You could show this to someone who's never seen Star Trek, and everything but those two lines where he's giving commands to the holodeck are going to make perfect sense. Mm -hmm. Is it representative of Next Generation as a whole? I don't know that it is. You could take a halfway decent writer, give them maybe half an hour, and they could rewrite this episode as a Star Trek The Original Series or as a Voyager. I'd go even further than that. You could easily replace Picard with Malcolm Reynolds or Daniel Jackson from one of the other series do a little tinkering with the script, and probably have it work almost exactly the same. Yeah, I mean, taking it out of Star Trek is the difference between a 15-minute rewrite and a one-hour rewrite. Yeah, but but I don't think you would ha end up losing much of the story or even the emotional impact of the themes or anything. Like, there's a lot of other shows you could have worked this into. Yeah, this script would be an amazing episode of whatever TV series it landed in, be it Star Trek be it mm -hmm. Firefly, be it Andromeda, be it Twilight Zone or Outer Limits. You could have put in Buffy, even. Yeah, you could have a completely new cast of characters in the Outer Limits. And it would work mm -hmm. really well. Just because it, the emotional core is that strong. The, the one thing that helps tremendously with putting it in Next Generation instead of anything else is that the episode is going to be made or broken based on the performance of the lead actor. And as far as I'm concerned, Patrick Stewart is the best actor in the history of the franchise and can more easily carry that weight than a lot of the alternatives. Well, and, and for, for those of us that, did, that were following the series, the fact that Picard is not a family man, that he doesn't like children, it's a well-established fact. It, this is a 180 um, for Picard. Whereas if, if, if this had been given to some other character, it wouldn't have made, I don't think, as quite as much emotional impact. You know, as if it was Riker. I mean, hell, if it was Geordi, it would just be, you know, his dreams come true. He's finally married. He's got the, the poor lovelorn schmuck. But, you know, or any of the other, you know. Though if he had rewritten for DS9, it would have been really awkward for, like, O'Brien, who's currently married. Uh, that would make all sorts of awkwardness. <laughs> DS9 would be the toughest because so many of those characters already have families. They do. You know, uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, Cisco's already been married, lost a wife, has a kid. Um, you know, so yeah, it, it could have been really interesting. Imagine Kira. Imagine if it was Kira. Kira settling down. There's an unexplored idea. You imagine Kira as your mom? Yeah, I imagine Kira taking the wharf role of blow it out of the sky and it being more like Bashir to be down on the floor, trapped and living in this life. Although if it's Bashir or Riker... The, the wife figure comes and invites you to bed. Those two would go. You know, that's, again, no that's a big asked. part of Picard's role where he doesn't want to offend her until he knows why he's there and what's going on. But he does say, you know, I'm not coming to bed with you. I'm, I'm just not going to sleep well. It's not fair to you. You'll be tossing and turning all night. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's, he's, he slides into it very easily, very, very easily instead of the you know, he, he quickly drops the, where am I? Who are you? What am I doing? You know, he realizes I should play along. Having said all that about how it may not be representative of the series as a whole, I think at the same time, it is very representative. It's a very uh, sci-fi futuristic framing device. You get to focus on a completely different culture that still puts the uh, whole meaning of the show or the whole meaning and like the deeper meanings of the show of, you know, focus on now and things like that into perspective without, it's not buried in the Star Trek universe, but it's still exactly the sort of show that Star Trek aims to put out all the time. They get to examine the meanings, you know, through the lens of other cultures and the futuristic sci-fi stuff, which it, it may not be spaceships and phasers, but it's still definitively Star Trek. I mean, that's what they go for. 
Yeah, the themes definitely belong on Star Trek. If you're a first-time viewer, you may not necessarily understand how the core cast members relate to each other. Right. But at the same time, it's definitely like this is, I mean, that's this is the reason Roddenberry made Star Trek. It's I want to look at all these different themes with the, you know, episode of the week storyline just happens to happen around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're definitely exploring strange new worlds and looking at new civilizations. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, normally it's it, it, it sort of it, it sort of takes a twist on, you know, what we did with the Voyager probes. We stuck a record on them and off they went. These people one-upped us on this. We're still young. Give us time. You know, it, it's not just, you know, not just you're going to read about it or listen about it. No, you're going to live what it was like to be one of us. And, and that was a, a definitely a, a unique uh, experience for Picard and, and for something we hadn't seen before. Yep. And it kind of reminded me of uh, a later episode. I think it's later. Another episode called Tapestry. Uh, where Picard, uh, Q grants Picard this moment uh, at his apparent death of having his, he gets to relive the moment in his youth when he gets his heart stabbed and replaced mm. with an artificial heart, which at the end of his life in the episode is giving out on him. He's having trouble with it. He gets to rewrite his life in that episode. And that one's buried in the Star Trek universe. You get Star Trek Aliens, you get Star Trek Fleet Academy, you get all kinds of, like, if you don't know Star Trek, you're not going to have any idea what's going on in that episode. But it still does the same sort of thing. It's like, okay, well, here's, you know, the different lens to look at the way you live your life Mm -hmm. through this, you know, science fiction setting. So it's the same concept, you know, presented very differently. And I think, like I said, I think that's why it represents the entire Star Trek series very well. Not just Mm -hmm. this episode, but all of Star Trek. Yeah, I can certainly see that. And speaking of Star Trek... One of the things that I've stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, is whether or not there are any deeper meanings or messages and morals in the episodes that we're talking about. Now, the fact that this time we're actually talking about Star Trek gives a bit of a leg up, because, as we said, that is generally a fundamental piece of the Star Trek recipe. It's a, it's a major ingredient there. Mm-hmm. Oh, it definitely, it, it definitely has deeper meanings. The, the morality of, you know, using the time that you're given, which is a theme that Star Trek comes back to, especially for Picard. Uh, they come back to it with him multiple times throughout the series. And, and unlike other, other Star Trek episodes and, and later series, it, it's not delivered with a sledgehammer. It's, it's very subtle. It's very emotional. You're drawn in. You're actually genuinely you know, you 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 get it. You get what he's feeling by the end of the episode. How emotional, and and even in it, it's done without dialogue. Like the final scene is just him picking up the flute and playing it. There's just no dialogue. It just yeah, Riker hands him the flute, and that's it. And you know, there's there's something to be said for the the power of of just simply just being with Picard and being with Patrick Stewart in that moment. You know, it's it's very deep. You know, idea and the idea of uh, and that idea of implanting some experiences in inside him. It, it comes back to us later um, in DS Nine in Hard Time, and done very very differently. So I think this is yeah, like I said, it's a very good episode and it's a very powerful one for him. Um, my my only draw criticism is that the rest of the series kind of forgets it existed, other than one or two callbacks and this really is literally life altering for him. I I think that's probably why it was forgotten. It was it was life altering, but unless you suddenly alter your entire show to focus on the fact that Picard has had this life altering experience, it would drown out everything else. And I think the fact that I don't think they when they put it in, you know, the sh- the upcoming planning schedule, I don't think they expected it to turn out this well either. Like, they probably just figure, oh, it's another one of our episode of the week. It's not part of the overarching plot. It's not serialized. We can stick this in. Do we want this at the beginning of the episode? Maybe we'll move this to season four. It could happen just about anywhere in the show. You know, it wouldn't have quite the emotional impact earlier on, but still, like like we've been saying, it can go just about anywhere, even in a different series. 
So I don't think they expected it to have that much lasting impact. They probably had the rest of the season already planned out and half the other one, the next two, before this was filmed. So they couldn't work it back in. Yeah. Well, the rest of the season was the season finale, so. Well, there's that. The next season, then. No, there's actually a, a quote online from Ron, Ron Moore about that, and how they, they had originally were just trying to go for a good hour of TV. And then when they finished it, they were like, oh, this is way more powerful than we had you know, but you know the the, you, the forest. You couldn't see the forest for the trees, kind of thing. And all of a sudden, it was like, oh, this radically kind of upends how Picard views life. Um, and they they kind of you know so they you know they quickly wrote the the, the follow up episode to to kind of give it a coda. But uh, I think they, they, you're right. It, they didn't intend for this to be life altering. It was like, oops. <laughs> kind of moments, but they, they ran with it anyways. And thankfully they did, because it, it really is a, a, an excellent hour of television. Mm-hmm. It is. And that is something I would say, I think back to my college days back in the 90s, I had a classmate who insisted that all TV was terrible just because of the way it was made. And he mm. wouldn't watch anything but film. And... Some of us thought he wasn't giving the medium of television a fair shake, so we put together a VHS tape with a handful of things on it, and this was one of them. And this is the one of the ones where he—I mean, he came back. He, you know, he watched all six hours that we had on that VHS tape. So the six episodes of six different shows. I picked out one of the comedic X Files episodes, the War of the Copperphages, specifically from season three. We had this one on there. He watched some of the Christmas break and came back, and he still didn't think it was going to be worth paying for cable, and we're still in touch. He still doesn't, but he recognizes, okay, it's not impossible to make good TV. It's just unlikely. Now it's all worse because they don't. <laughs> yeah. Well, now it's just, you know, really difficult to make network TV that engages us the way a lot of the cable shows do. Yeah, between yeah, yeah, between cable and, and and Netflix and Amazon, they don't have the restrictions, the 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 standards and practices restrictions that that network TV does, and they can make really some really fantastic TV. I, I think that's something we've seen overall, just because like with cable television, you it started off with less restrictions, but it gets to the point now where cable is standard TV. Mm-hmm. HBO is the outlier, so you get the pay channels that were giving you, you know, Sopranos and your other high-quality television shows. And now even that, that's still the good stuff, but you end up getting things like Netflix and stuff that never even makes it to TV that just happens to get released online that is high-quality stuff now because there's less restrictions over the whole thing. It is, and one of the things that Netflix has done to change the TV market is one I'm hugely in favor of because I love serialized storytelling. Netflix has made it so that they're able to do more serialized storytelling on every source and in every medium because now it's reasonable to assume that audiences are going to watch every episode in sequence. Mm -hmm. When Next Generation was on the air, that wasn't always the case. You could assume a given proportion of your audience is going to have a VCR, but only this percentage is actually going to set their VCR to record your show every week. Well, like you were saying, season two ended in a clip show because clip shows were still a thing. You still had to remind people what they had seen that season. Or in the case of this clip show, it's you were under contract to produce X number of episodes. You went over budget on the earlier ones Mm -hmm. and had to find a way to make another episode under budget. In the 1967 Amazing Spider-Man cartoon ends in a clip show. Because they had money left over and they were given, they they said, we think on average it'll take X number of dollars to make an episode. So the network gave them a number of dollars that was like that times the number of episodes they wanted. And then they stretched it and made them cheaper because they would get paid per episode that they delivered. So they made a clip show to deliver one more episode. (laughs) And and going back to the the serialized nature, I think... I'm noticing people now, now that we've got Amazon, now that we've got Netflix and people are, are watching it, I'm, I'm getting more and more people are like, oh, DS9's really, really good. 
that didn't watch it the first time or only caught caught it out of sequence because it was it did rely on serialized uh, storytelling, especially like the last three seasons are very heavily serialized. Well, the last season especially, it ends in a ten parter. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's yeah, it doesn't yeah you you if you miss it you you missed it. Whereas now now that people are watching it and streaming, I'm hearing more and more people coming back. It's like. You were right. Deep Space Nine really is the best of the of the series, and this is really good. And oh my gosh, you know, and and you know, the, it was it's like wow, this is really kind of dark, and it's you know, and it was for its time period, it was incredibly dark for for a series and for sci fi, and it was something that that people were, but it it relied on on you catching it every week in order, or else. Yeah, and that was that was something that started to happen. It's got its own episode coming up. I don't think anything from the era was more pronounced with that than Babylon 5. But, yeah, I think Babylon 5, and then to a lesser extent, Deep Space Nine and the X-Files in the 90s. Deep Space Nine and X-Files, I say to a lesser extent because they weren't as serialized as Babylon 5, Mm -hmm. but they were, they had much higher audience numbers because the way they were distributed, especially Mm -hmm. X-Files. What was else was Twin Peaks? Twin Peaks was in the '90s too. That was that was that relied on on a, on a fair amount of serialization. I need to go back and rewatch that one too because that one's since they're relaunching that one or sequelizing it, I guess. Yep, it's on my list. Yep, it's happening now. I mean, we're again we're recording this well in advance, so by the time this comes out, the ink's probably going to be dry on X Files season eleven. Right now, it's just very close in talks, but not a, a sure thing. But it's it's looking like that six-episode event series we got last year was popular enough that we're going to get another season that's going to be more than six episodes, but not a full 22. But in any event, so just looking at Next Generation as a whole, given the familiarity that we have with it, would you guys also have chosen this as the best episode of the series, or is you know was there something else you might have picked instead? Or I think for for the fans, it's like picking your favorite kid. <laughs> it, it, and I before I had rewatched it when when you'd for, when we first approached the concept, I'm like, really, is Inner Light the best episode? You know, because there's all good things and and this this you know measure of a man. And then I rewatched it. I'm like, yeah, that's that's pretty solid. In terms of, I guess, the one thing that that this is lacking is it's not as ensemble. And one of the things that's when Star Trek is at its best is it's when it's an ensemble. It's the family. It's that family dynamic. Whereas something like All Good Things, everybody has a moment. Everyone's got something to do. Whereas this one is focused on Picard. Not that you know each each character does get us you know several or one or two episodes per season where it's focused on just them. And, but this, it, it really is. It's really, a, I, I, it, an argument could be made that this is the best. There are very, there are some other really good episodes uh, for different reasons. But after rewatching, I was like, no, that's, that's, that's pretty damn good. Yeah. Ed, there's a lot of episodes that have different reasons for being a favorite. And it's easier to lump them and say, well, this is definitely in the top 10. This is probably definitely in the top three. And I'd be hard-pressed to argue against it being the best episode. Yeah, from my perspective, I would say this is probably the best hour of television that came out as a part of Star Trek The Next Generation. If you're trying to say the best of the series that must be next generation and doesn't really work in another show for that. I'd probably lean toward the best of both worlds. That mm-hmm. two parter. The one that gave us Locutus of Borg. Yeah. And just that, that season finale that ends with Riker giving the command to fire on Picard. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that that's a moment I will never forget. So yeah, it's definitely on the short list. The question is, do you define the best episode of the series as just the best hour or half hour of television to result from the series? Or is it, you know, something that has to be integral? Best of both worlds works because, I mean, what that kind of marks is this is the moment you could really say from this point forward, the show 
really starts hitting on all cylinders. Season three starts to kind of start to figure things out, but really that moment of, like you said, yeah, when, when Breaker says fire, all of a sudden it's like, oh, all of a sudden, you know, the stakes are much higher. Uh, we finally created a villain worthy of the ship and the crew because prior to that we were dealing with, you know, the Klingons and the Romulans and, and God help us, the Ferengi. It, it, they just, nothing really had the teeth, but the Borg scared us. Um, and, it, and it wasn't even their first, in, you know, they were introduced earlier on and they were scary then. And then, you know, then they show up and then now they've taken, you know, Picard, like I said, they've taken dad. And, and suddenly, you know, the, sh- the, the kids are left with the keys to the car and how, and the, it gives them their moment to shine. Because that's, that's, that's good storytelling is when you take, because, you know, you have this super competent, trustworthy, you know, when Picard strides on the bridge, everyone kind of relaxes. <laughs> it's like, Dad's here. This is the guy that knows what he's doing. Now, now he's gone. Now what do we do? And, and it really alters the dynamic. Um, and and it, that is sort of the moment where Star Trek Next Gen really starts getting really good. And I think a lot of people can, can tune into that one and go, ooh. That was that was a good one, and the same could be said for like all good things. Everyone's got a moment, and you you're dealing with different things, the the different concepts. You know the the what if concept in the future of you know the the family's broken up. How do we deal with that? Yeah. So it, it, it's there's there's all there's some very good episodes. Most of this the cliffhanger season finales were all excellent episodes. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, all good things, I guess. It's nitpicky, but it's always irked me that the only consistent interpretation is that Picard has dementia. Had it really been an anomaly reaching back in the past as a result of their scan to that point in space as they propose, then the future Picard would not have come to find no anomaly. The future Picard mm-hmm. would have found the anomaly that would have vanished when their scan ended. Because it would have reached out into the back, or back into the past. That's that's the in, the intrinsic problem with time traveling episodes is you're always going to end up with a paradox. Somebody else pointed out that the anomaly is supposed to start because you have three enterprises doing the same thing in the same location, and you actually have two enterprises and um, Captain Beverly Picard's ship, the Pasteur. Well, plus. It- you are also kind of hard-pressed to define same location in our space-time. It's relative to what? Well, when you throw the word time in, obviously it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. Don't, don't, don't think too hard about this. <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, despite our, us nitpicking, that is still one of the other, other best episodes of, this, of the show. I think that's probably one of the best season f- or series finales I've ever seen of any, any series, too. Yeah, so. and we're going to be talking about our fair share of those, because I've got a prepared list of about 135 series that I own in entirety for this podcast series, and about 20 of them, the highest rated episode of the series is the series finale. Mm-hmm. And I believe only one of them is it actually the pilot episode. <laughs> All Good Things is interesting, yeah, because I remember watching it originally and not having the emotional weight that a finale should have because we knew, all the fans knew in the back of our minds that the movie was coming out in five months. Um, we knew in, you know, this was going off in May, and we knew in November that the show was, that we had generations. We already knew that. But now when I go back and watch, it's like, oh, this is, you know, you know, when they're all sitting around the table at the poker table and, and playing, and it's just like, oh, well, that's 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 touching. That's really actually very sweet. Mm-hmm. They actually did a really good job of that. The the movie not as much so, um, but they they definitely they, they kind of really hit that moment of Picard joining him at the table. Yeah. All right. So, uh, did you guys have any final thoughts on this episode? If somebody's listening to this without having watched Star Trek. Just go watch this. You'll enjoy it. <laughs> Absolutely. This is a, a fantastic piece of work. And, and like I said, the writing this is one of those moments where writing and the acting really just hit. And the, it just, it's really powerful. It's a really good piece of, it's a really good hour of television. It's fantastic. It's, it's really good stuff. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. 
and then and then go watch Hard Time. Go watch Hard Time and see how it how it goes very very wrong on DS9. Yeah, well, our DS9 podcast is about In the Pale Moonlight. Oh yeah, that would definitely be number one. So that one, well, uh, I had to actually look at the exact breakdown of votes on that one because it was that close between that and Trials and Tribulations for the best of DS9. Really, I, I would have figured they would. A visitor would have would have been the the, the front runner. Most people, um, when I hear favorite episodes, I hear either In the Pale Moonlight or. Um, the visitor as their their favorites. Yeah, it, it wasn't far off, but I mean, IMDb rounds things to the nearest tenth, and mm. I, I think the visitor was like point one below the other two. All three, all three are awesome episodes. They're absolutely fantastic episodes. Uh, and, and, and trials and tribulations is is uh, you know a, a good example of how Star Trek could, should celebrate its milestone anniversaries, unlike last year. Or, or 2016, for those of you listening, way in the future. Well, at least we got Beyond, which was... Yeah, yeah it was. It was fun. Best of the reboots, if you ask me. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would agree. Major course correction after Into Darkness. Absolutely. And a necessary one. We needed... Yeah, we, we haven't done a pot... We didn't do one for Into Darkness yet. No. I, I, we weren't as excited about that as we were about Beyond. <laughs> We weren't as motivated to sit down and talk about it for a couple of hours. I think, yeah, it's probably we need to go back and do Into Darkness and, and Beyond sometime before the fourth. It, at least as of right now, there's, it sounds like there will be a fourth movie. Yep. And they've signed Chris Hemsworth to come back as George Kirk. Yeah. It should be interesting. Oh, cool. Yeah, it sounds like for the uh, even episodes of the reboot, they want to do something that to some degree echoes the original movies. So Into Darkness, they went a little okay. too far with doing not... I'm going to say naming a character Khan rather than doing a story with Khan. Uh, I would agree. I would agree. And then it looks like number four, they're doing it... They're making it a time travel movie. But that may be where the similarities oh, good. We end. Can, we can go save, save, the, save the whales. Well, we'll save something else. Yeah. It, What's we'll save George save the Bumble- No, we'll save the bumblebees. Uh, that's that's the that's the new endangered species that we have to save now is uh, the the bumblebee. Yeah, it's officially on the endangered species list. Yeah. So for those of you listening in the future, a bumblebee is a small insect. Yeah, it's yeah. It'll, it'll be interesting to see. So yeah, hopefully you know maybe the if they if they go too far back because right now you know the odd start the odd reboot movies are the good ones and the evens are, are uh, so far. Well, uh, so we'll we'll see how how well we do. Yeah, I, I think as far as I'm concerned, what happened is that was it uh, Galaxy Quest came out, and that was the real Star Trek Ten, and that's the good even numbered, and then the next one was Nemesis, which was in the bad, and then we got the first, the 2009, and then Into Darkness. So we're still alternating. People just forget to include Galaxy Quest on the list. That's a good. I theory. heard they were talking uh, a sequel for that. Yeah, but without Alan Rickman, I don't know. I know. Don't remind me. <laughs> I know. I refuse to believe he's actually passed away. He's, as far as I'm concerned, he's sitting on a beach somewhere collecting twenty percent. I think so. I'm hoping. Or somebody, somebody's other fan theory was that David Bowie has gone off, find, found, created an alternate dimension, and he's taken all the cool people with him. I heard that he's selectively choosing people to bring into the labyrinth. Some, some of the cooler, some of the coolest people. So. Here's here's to hoping, but yeah, a sequel would be fun because yeah, it, it could be interesting. Uh, I don't know if because I've I've tried to show Galaxy Quest to people to to younger people, and I don't think they quite get the humor because they don't quite understand how cheesy our sci-fi was and how these actors were the actors were bigger than <laughs> you know their own starships. Well, it's like that fun with Kirk and Spock reader. I don't know if you guys mm-hmm. have seen that. I think I'm trying to remember. It, it's it's like a, a Dick and Jane parody, but with Kirk and Spock. <laughs> it's I picked it up about a month ago. It's fantastic. Things like three crew members beam down to the planet. One blue shirt, one yellow shirt, one red shirt. Three crew members beam down. Three crew members have an adventure. Two crew members beam back up. One blue shirt, one yellow shirt. Two crew members come back to the ship. One crew member is fondly remembered. Oh my gosh. Or, you know, these guys go to an alternate universe. 
Spock has a beard in this universe. In this universe, <laughs> Kirk refuses the advances of a woman. This is a bad universe. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So I, I grew a goatee for most of the last half of last year, and I, I'm a field guy at work, so I'm not in the office frequently, and I happened to run into one of our other sales guys who's a huge Star Trek fan there, and he saw me, and he's like, oh, hey, I like that. I'm like, oh, yeah, and he goes, what are you doing? Because he's not usually out in the field. I'm like, what are you doing out here? And he looks at me, he's like, I'm like, I don't think you belong out here. He goes, yeah, I don't think you belong in this universe. <laughs> As soon as he saw the I'm like, I, I'm, th- I'm probably one of the only people in the office who would have gotten what he was referring to when he said it, too. Well, we'll, yeah, we'll get to that in a little more detail when we discuss Star Trek, the original series. Although, when we do that, it's going to be with City on the Edge of Forever. Mm-hmm. So, just wrapping things up. Thanks, guys, for joining us again. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. And why don't you share where people can find you online, if there's any place where you want to be found. Yeah, usually, I mean, usually I'm on Bureau. If if there's anything Star Trek related, I'll I'll review it. I need to be reviewing more, more books. I'm doing more books these days, so look for for more books. And otherwise, you can find me. Uh, my website's thevoicesinmyhead.com. So for any of you audiobook fans, if you guys uh, reach out to me and let me know if you want to listen to the audiobooks that I've narrated. And Lex, you've had podcasts going in the past. Are any of them still active right now? Or? Uh, not currently. I'm pretty much an internet transient at this point. You can always find me at Horizon Labs or Saturday Nights with the Drunk Pete guys on Twitter. Okay. And if people need explanations for Drunk Pete, check out the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast. I refer to just about any episode about Spider-Man, but especially those with Lex, Scott McElroy, or Ben Merritt. All right. So thanks again, and we will be back for the best episode of another series in two weeks' time. Thank you for listening.